student, you're dismissed. Ladies, thank y'all. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Bless you. Come on it's a up. Pretty, pretty good debut for the C3 choir, don't you think? Yeah. 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 That was great. <laughs> um, if you're a student, you're dismissed. Welcome. I greet you in the name of my Savior. Um, happy to be here with y'all and with you. Hello. Uh, if I don't make the announcements now, I'll get all excited and forget. So let me give you three quick announcements real quick. Bryce, thank you, my friend. Bless you, sir. Um, one is tonight at 5 o'clock uh, at Kim and Jerry Bowden's house. Uh, we're having our annual... Uh, we're having our annual C3 Christmas party. There will be lots of uh, lovely decorate Christmas decorations to behold, lots of good food to eat, and lots of wonderful people to, to hang out with. And so I hope you'll come. It's a come and go, so you don't have to stay. Trust me. Hooray! We do not have to stay all night. So uh, if you want to, you can. But if you only want to stay a little while... God bless your ministry. Says the king of come and go. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Heavy on the go. But uh, anyway, uh, yeah, 5 o'clock, Kim and Jerry's house. And I hope you can come and, and your children are invited. And so please come and, and, and be with us. Um, next Sunday morning, 10 o'clock, we will have coffee and orange juice and donuts and uh Biscuits with stuff in the middle of them, depending on what, what Jerry brings, but there'll be all kind of good food. Uh, and we will have more Christmas music, and Shirley and I will be talking more about Christmas. And uh, anything about that that I... Yeah, so I hope you'll come and be with us next Sunday morning. Uh, it'll be fun. It'll be a good morning. And uh, we'll start serving breakfast around 10. And uh, yeah. Pre-COVID, we ate all the time around yeah, here. Yeah, yeah, we were a food and, eating, you know, we were... And then it went away, yeah, so. and now it's coming back. <laughs> yeah. So, and then, um, there was... Oh, I was going to say this. If you are going, I didn't hear about any of that. What that's mean... Let me translate that for you. You're not on our church email list. Okay, because we sent out lots of stuff about that. So if you don't know about it, that means you're not getting emails. Um, please, there's little cards in the back, or you can write it on any kind of a piece of paper, your email address that I can read, uh, and uh, uh, we'll start sending it to you so you'll be able to be caught up. Uh, if you saw something about a ladies' event in December, we're not doing that. We Just there was too, too many much, things. Too so many we'll things going on. So we'll, we'll, we'll catch back yep. up in January. Yep. Okay? Is that good? I think you did it. Kimberly, anything I forgot? No, you got it. Okay, good. Got it. Okay, because she'll <laughs> lecture me if I forgot something. So, okay. Um, I don't know whether you uh, paid attention to the Christmas carols that we were singing, but in Hark the Herald Angels Sing, there's a line that I thought about, oh, a few days ago. Actually, I asked Chris to be sure and include that song and uh, read that or do that little stanza if you will yeah so there's this uh stanza like stanza two i think where um the verse reads mild he lay his glory by born that man no more may die born to raise the sons of earth born to give them second birth mild he lay his glory by yeah yeah i don't know whether you know we sing these things literally from 
the earliest memories of childhood, but I wonder if we think much about what we're singing. Um, that, that little statement, mild he lay his glory, his glory, his glory by. You ever thought about what that means? It's, in my little world of theology, it's a huge theological idea that that writer included in that line. Uh, it's actually a Pauline idea called kenosis. And I'm not trying to impress anybody in here with my knowledge about anything. Uh, uh, but I just want you to know that what that writer, when he, when he says, mild he, Jesus, lay his glory by, what, what he was saying was, is that, it, it, like I said, it relates to this idea of kenosis. It's the idea that God set aside or laid down his glory, his reputation, his power, his wisdom, his, uh, uh, all the things that separate God from us. Jesus lay those things by or down so that he could become a baby boy and grow up uh, to be a man and identify with us. Kenosis, it means to lay down or put aside God's glory or divinity. And it actually, Paul is the one that, that addresses this idea most clearly in Philippians chapter 2. Would you read a few verses yeah, from Philippians 2? So Philippians 2. two I think um, it's 7 and 8 maybe. Is that what you want? I think isn't that 5 close? through 7. Five, yeah, start five, there. Yeah, start yeah, with yeah. 5. Yeah, that'd be good. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. Okay. That's that idea of kenosis. That Jesus laid aside or laid down that which defined him as God. He laid down his, um, his uh, rights, his privileges, his reputation, his glory. And his willingness to lay those things down are the... That's the very thing that has changed our lives, changed our world. That The result of Jesus' willingness to lay down his rights is the very thing that has impacted you and me and our world and changed it forever. I love the, the stanza in the Christmas hymn. Uh, that he did it mild, like without, I, I don't know what that exactly means to you, but mm. meek comes to mind without a fight, without well, a like, yeah. you know, a, a struggle between yeah. what is mine and to I keep. love that you identified that word mild. See, I, I, yes, I think it includes without a fight. I just took it as without a big show. Mm. He didn't do what I do. When I sacrifice for someone, 
I go out of my way for someone. I allow myself to be inconvenienced for someone. I'll do it because I'm a very good guy. <laughs> but I'm going to let you know that I did it. I'm going to, oh, woe is me. Oh, can you believe that I had to go to this much trouble? Look at the sacrifice that I had to make. Jesus did it mildly. As if he came in such a way that no one in the world knew about it. Isn't that lovely? I see, I love that, that, that idea of, of mild. Um, Christmas is a time where we remember and celebrate and give thanks for Jesus' willingness to lay aside his rights. Kenosis, to embrace kenosis. But it's also a time, I believe very strongly, where God wants us to be challenged to follow suit. To do unto others what Jesus did for you and me. I think God is challenging us. Will you, as my child, as my image bearer, as one that has benefited from the kenosis of Christ, are you willing to embrace your kenosis? Are you willing to lay down your rights, your reputation, your powers, are you willing to lay down that which you value most to impact others in significant and life-changing ways? It's interesting. We see it, of course, in the story of Christ. And we know it when we see it in humanity, too. Mm -hmm. And we honor that and we love that. We love that. We're, our spirit is drawn to that. Mm -hmm. But when it comes our turn to lay that by. That's what we're talking about today, I think. Well, that's very different. That's the rub. Yeah. I love it when you do it. Uh, it's beautiful. Not so it's much beautiful. when I have to do it. Yeah, yeah. That's not my fave. Yeah. 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 Um, obviously, you're sitting there hearing us, and your mind is probably running in multitudes of ways as to how this would, uh, could be applied to our lives. But I have a very specific application to this idea of kenosis, us embracing our kenosis, I have a very specific application that I want to challenge us with today as we enter into the last two weeks before Christmas. And that is, I wonder if you and I wonder if me, if, yeah, if, if I am willing and if you are willing to lay down your right and my right to be right. Am I willing to lay down my right to be right? Because depending upon your personality and whether you're a one or two or three or what all those numbers. Enneagram. Yeah, the Enneagram people. Or if you're a golden retriever or, a, you know, a, all these lion and all these different things. Depending upon, I know that all that means things. And, uh, the, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not 
discounting that completely. Uh, uh, but, uh, yes, and I know our rearing and our personalities and all those things will impact how we value being right. But just because I, I don't know your number or your animal symbol or any of those things, but I do know that you are as broken as I am. And because I know you're broken like I am, I know there's a part of you that finds great delight in being right. No one in this room takes as much delight in being right as me. And um, I guess that's why God really spoke to me this week as I was working on this, as we were working on this. Am I willing to, to lay down my wealth, my time, my relationships, my priorities and passions and uh, enjoyments? Applies every one of those. But Larry, are you willing to lay down your right to be right? Shirley and I were at a dinner party last night, uh, actually with, uh, <laughs> I was going to say Yoga Robin, but just, but just Robin, and uh, her precious husband and some, friend, some mutual friends of ours. And uh, one of the ladies that we have, that we're in this little dinner club, and one of the ladies is a bona fide, licensed, real live <laughs> professional counselor. And she and I, I love her, and, and I I think she loves me too, and we were standing there eating yummy food that Robin had prepared. And uh, she, she said, have you read John Gottman's la latest book? And I said, no, ma'am. And, and she said, well, I, I have, and I, she wanted to talk about it. And I said, what's so hysterical is that I, was go I told her last night, I said, I'm going to mention John Gottman tomorrow morning. And she goes, are you kidding? And I said, no. She goes, I didn't know that churches would allow you to mention John Gottman. And I said, well, our church does. And so anyway, I had already found this quote that was very significant to me. If you don't know who John Gottman is, he, in counseling circles, he would be, if not the most uh, authority in the in the in marital relationships if he's not number one he would definitely be in the top three by anybody's definition by anybody you go to any counseling place talk to anybody there's a counselor that oh yeah John Gottman is one of he he's either the man or he's one of the men okay uh, he, he's the dude yeah, he's he's incredible and one of the things that John Gottman says is this I want to I want to say it right he says there is absolutely no evidence linking divorce with the intensity or frequency of relational conflict. I'm going to read it one more time and then I'm going to say it again. It says there is at John Gottman. Now this isn't Julio or Larry Ray or you know some you know knucklehead. This is, this is the man. He says there is absolutely no evidence linking divorce or the, the ending or the destruction of marriage. There is absolutely no evidence linking divorce with the intensity of relational conflict 
or the frequency of relational conflict. That means that there can there are people, there are couples who have they fight. I mean, they take all. They, you know, they are in it, and they are somebody. You know, they're gonna they're, they're gonna fight with all the passion and the intensity and the determination that they've got within them. And there are couples that fight all the time. And John Gottman would say that those two types of couples could very well have very healthy marriages. Couples that fight with great passion and intensity, couples that fight all the time. They can still have very healthy marriages. But then he says this, but there is much evidence linking divorce or the destruction of a relationship with how quickly relational conflict is resolved. Read it one more time. But there is much evidence linking divorce with how quickly relational conflict is resolved. That means that a healthy marital couple who are going to spend the next 50 or 60 years together could fight all the time. Or when they do fight, it is intense. But the couple that needs to be alarmed that things are going south and they are not going to end well or long is the couple that holds grudges. The couple that lets conflicts and wounds and disagreements linger, last. John Gottman would say their future as a married couple isn't good. Don't bet on them. You, I want you to, I, want, I hope you get this. This also applies to parents and kids, kids and parents, friendships, relationships, where relational conflict is allowed to linger. Those relationships are not going to last. Isn't it funny? John Gottman discovers this and writes this in a book and is a New York Times bestseller. The Bible says the very same thing 3,000 years ago. Oh, is that what? The, huh. Isn't it funny that the Bible figured this out thousands of years earlier? The Bible talks about this both in example and in command. The Bible is filled with examples of, of relationships that end disastrously because grudges were held. Relationship problems were not resolved. Let me give you one. I'm going to mention a couple of others in a minute, but let me just give you one. The, I asked y'all, I sent you an email, if you get the church email, I sent you an email that said, please read 2 Samuel chapter, hello, uh, please read 2 Samuel 13 and 14. Now, just, just to get ready for our lesson today. 
And I know that most of you didn't read it, so let me just summarize it real quickly. In 2 Samuel 13 and 14, it's, a, it's two chapters dealing with uh, King David's family. And there are two horrible, horrible chapters filled with horrible, horrible events. And just, just the bottom line is this. David had many children. Literally, many, many, many children. Two of his sons were named Amnon and Absalom. And then David had a, one, another child, a daughter, named Tamar. One of David's boys, Amnon, um, he rapes his stepsister, his half-sister, I guess I should say, Tamar. And King David, he was not a strong parent. In fact, he, he, his parenting skills sucked. He was terrible uh, at being a parent. He's a great king, great warrior, great poet, great singer. Uh, he did great things. Parenting was not a good, was not great. And uh, he, didn't, he didn't deal with his son Amnon. Well, Tamar's brother, Absalom, uh, when he realized that his dad wasn't going to do anything, uh, he took matters into his own hands and killed his brother as punishment for doing what he did to his sister. And then the Bible says that Absalom fled to a neighboring country and stayed there several years. A lot more to the story, and you really ought to read it because it's an intriguing but terrible story. But at the end of the day, David's friends see how much David misses Absalom. He's heartbroken that he's lost one son and now he's lost another son. And one son to death and one son to geography. And uh, uh, they finagle it so that Absalom comes back home after being gone for a number of years. But David does something very unexpected and very destructive. When Absalom comes back, and that's what David wanted, David still feels, I believe, some kind of a, of a belief, a, 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 a thought, that if I really give Absalom full acceptance, full acknowledgement, full reception back into the family, somehow that shows disloyalty to Tamar and to Amnon. And so what David did, when Absalom comes back, David says this, Absalom can come back home, but he's got to go live in his own house away from the palace, and he can never come and see me. I read that not too long ago, and buddy, that spoke to me. I mean, I can't express to you how it spoke to me, because how that is demonstrated in our lives all the time. Somebody does something that is wrong, and it's wrong. We know it's wrong. We tell them it's wrong. And there probably is some kind of a, uh, an official, legal uh, forgiveness. I forgive them. But we still keep this, this offense, this wall, this force field up, this, this 
and you can call it whatever you want, but at the end of the day, what is it? It's a grudge. It's a grudge. Yes, you can, you're, you're forgiven, but you, I'm never going to let you back into my life like you once were. I'll never let you into my life like I know you want to be. And then the story is, because David held a grudge against Absalom and made him live apart, he was there, but he wasn't there. It so destroyed the relationship between Absalom and David that Absalom ultimately wound up trying. It was a miracle of God that Absalom didn't kill David and David's entire family. David almost lost the throne, the nation, and all of his children because he would not lay down his right to be right. He almost lost it all. There's a verse in chapter 14 of 2 Samuel that hit me like a ton of bricks. And here's what it says. Crud. We're, oh, here it is. God is continually devising ways for banished people to no longer be banished. Isn't that lovely? What's God up to in your life? Lots of things I'm thinking. But you know one of the things that God's up to? He is continually at work devising ways for the people in your life that have been banished to no longer be banished. It makes God sad when banished people can't come home, aren't accepted, aren't, it's, it's more than forgiveness because I can say legally you're forgiven, but you just can't come back into my life. I'm right. I have the right to keep you out. You hurt me. You wronged me. You disappointed me. And I forgive you. I don't wish you ill. I'm not going to punish you. But I have the right to keep you out so you will never have the chance to do it again. You know the consequence in David's life and in Absalom's life of unwillingness to lay down grudges, to lay down the right to be right? It turned kings and princes into paupers and slaves. And it turned palaces, glorious, beautiful palaces, into shacks, cold shacks. And I want to suggest that there are people in this very room that are the children of God. Princes and princesses living in the blessings and the abundance of God. And we will celebrate Christmas this year. We will celebrate the coming of the one who willingly laid his glory by. And yet our homes will be empty of joy. Empty of peace. Empty of intimacy. Oh, people will come because it's dutiful. 
You're supposed to go visit your family. We got we got to go see your mother. We got to go. You know. But there's no delight. There's no joy. There's no there's no love because we're unwilling to lay down our right to be right. The Bible repeatedly not only gives us examples, it gives us commands to end our conflicts quickly and to create peace quickly. Proverbs 17 says, starting a quarrel is like breaching a dam, so end the conflict before it's too late. Have you ever thought about what, that, what Solomon's saying there? Have you ever seen a a video of a dam giving way and the destruction. There comes a moment when a dam cracks and there's nothing to be done. All that's left is for the destruction to sweep through that valley. But you know the other side of that is, do you know what happens? What else happens in a desert land like Israel when there's no longer a dam? People die of thirst. There's no reservoir of, of water to quench people's thirst. It's all gone. There's no reserves. Ephesians 4, Paul says, In your anger, don't sin. Don't let the sun go down while you're angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. That's an incredible phrase. End your conflict. End your anger quickly because if you don't, you will give the devil a foothold. You will open the door of your life and your family to satanic attack. Jesus says in Matthew 5, settle conflicts in your life quickly with your adversaries. Do it while you still can or you may be handed over to the judge and spend the rest of your life in prison. He goes on in the same chapter to say, if you are at the temple worshiping God and remember someone that you were in conflict with, stop worshiping God and go heal the conflict. Can you imagine Jesus Christ telling you or me, stop worshiping God? I thought that's what we were created to do. Yeah. But Jesus values the healing of conflict, the, the restoration of relationships, more than he values you and I worshiping God. Paul says in Hebrews 12, make every effort to live in peace with people. Be holy, for without holiness no one will see God. See to it that no one falls short of God's grace, resulting in bitterness, which causes trouble and defiles many. Don't follow Esau's immoral and godless example, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Notice what Paul calls Esau immoral and godless. And what was Esau's sin? 
you Bible scholars, what did Esau, what was his sin? What made Esau immoral and godless? He held a grudge against his brother Jacob their entire adult life. But Esau was right. Esau was treated wrongly. Esau was tricked by his brother. Esau was right. God calls him immoral and ungodly. You know, in literature, of course, that we see this story, that these stories reflected over and over and over, this idea of keeping a grudge or holding a grudge. Do you remember that book from high school or perhaps the movie, The Count of Monte Cristo? Do you remember that? Um, I like that book. And in it, quickly, there's a guy, his name is Edmond Dantes, and uh, it's the time of the fall of Napoleon, and he is on the rise to, in, the, in the society. And his friends are jealous, or the, or the people around him, not friends, are jealous of his rise to the top. And so they make up this um, lie that he's treasonous and that he is, you know, gone with, he's an, a, a Bonapartist or whatever. So they, they make up this lie and Edwin Dantes finds himself in prison. And he's there for a long time. He's there for 14 years. He finally escapes. In, uh, he digs his way out. In those 14 years, though, what he does is takes that grudge, takes that, that wrongness that was done to him and creates a plan. He just works and works and works and creates a plan to get everybody back if he can ever get out of here. Mm. That's the story. He finally does get everybody back, leaves his own, and here's the part I want to uh, emphasize, leaves his old nature behind, right? Leaves Edmond Dantes behind and takes on a whole new persona. Mm. Dressed all in black. It's very, you know, gothic. Um, takes on a whole new persona. The Count of Monte Cristo. A person who avenges the wrongs. A person, a man holding a grudge. And I think that is a cool story, but terrible. Because the metaphor of that, don't, don't miss. He decided to become a person of grudge. To hold a grudge. Mm. And he became a completely, that's who he, that's who he was. And he became that. That thing he couldn't set aside, he mm. became that. Dang. And that's the way this story He became goes. what he was unwilling to lay down. Yes. Dude. And what he hated, ironically. And it destroyed his life, did it not? It did. First Peter says, don't repay evil and insult with evil and insult. Rather repay evil with blessing for this is God's calling upon your life so that you may inherit a blessing laying down my right to be right when you've wronged me that is not easy I would suggest that it is incredibly costly but you know the old saying you get what you pay for just because it's costly doesn't mean it's not worth it. Hebrews chapter 11, Paul says that God's children willingly paid much for they were looking forward to something better. Hmm. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here in just a minute. But I wanted to end, uh, I, I guess this is fair, 
for me to say that at least one of, if not your favorite show right now, is Ted Lasso. I love Ted Lasso. Yeah, I knew you did. Um, do you remember uh, Ted Lasso told his athletes that, that he asked them, what's the happiest animal of all animals? Do you remember? I don't. Give me a second. Goldfish. And do you know why it's the happiest animal of all animals? It has the shortest memory of any animal. He only can remember things how long? Ten seconds. Dang! She's good! <laughs> that got it! Yeah, that's exactly right. He, I must be the goldfish because I can't remember any of that. Ted Lasso said that great athletes and great sports teams have to have memories like a goldfish. They only remember things very briefly, literally ten seconds. I wonder what Jesus wants to give you for Christmas this year. You know, the very first Christmas, Jesus, we, we focus on what was given to Jesus. But in reality, we celebrate Christmas because of what Jesus gave us. I wonder what Jesus wants to give you and me this Christmas. I want to suggest two things. I believe that Jesus would find great delight in giving me and giving you the grace to lay down the right to be right. It'll take God's grace. You and I cannot do it on our own. It's too precious, my right to be right, to prove you wrong, to protect myself. But God's grace is sufficient, and it's greater than my sin, and it can give me the ability to lay down my right to be right. And I believe that God wants to give you and me for Christmas the memory of a goldfish. <laughs> the one who is omniscient, who knows everything. He knows the end from the beginning. And yet that same one cast our sins as far as the east is from the west and he declares, I will remember your sins no more. Anything you want to add, friend? No. Okay. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Thank you. You know, I say every week that we celebrate the Lord's Supper to give thanks and to remember. Right? Let's be a little specific. I'm not asking you to shout anything out. You can, but I'm not asking you to. I'm just asking you the question, what is it today in particular that you're giving thanks for? What is it today that you are remembering about God in particular? I'd like to suggest to you that we give thanks as we eat this bread that represents the body of Jesus and we drink this juice which represents his blood. Maybe we should stop where we're seated and remember and give thanks that the God of the Bible revealed in the person of God's Son, Jesus, is a God 
that never holds grudges. God doesn't hold grudges. And if I have his DNA, and if I have his spirit living in me, at work in me, there's a part of me that knows that I shouldn't hold grudges to. I should lay down my right to be right. Why don't we stop and give thanks that God does not hold, our, hold grudges against us?